So why should anybody care about a parasitic ideology which has gripped the university system, gripped the American professorate, is spilling outside the university? Who cares? It doesn't affect me, as someone would be prone to say. Well, that, that's actually not true. It affects people multiple ways. It affects when the institutional system, when the academic system is compromised, among the consequences of that, the big picture consequence is that the universities are the gems of American exceptionalism. There are research production engines. They produce the research, they produce our technology, everything. Medicine, telecommunications, it's all there. And I'll give you a very specific example of how the fruits of the university are being undermined. It's called research justice. And research justice is, for example, you will only cite certain authors with certain identity characteristics. So you, should, you ought not to cite white males or white heterosexual males or what have you, and you ought to cite more people of color. The problem with that is that, beside being utterly insane, the problem with that is that that not only compromises what the institution is capable of producing in terms of our the products of our knowledge in any arena you can think of. The problem is you limit what you can know. You don't build on previous work because of an identity characteristic someone has. So for example, you maybe not build on a new thesoscope or you maybe not build on a new medical procedure or way to fill a tooth because the, the progenitor of that idea was a white male. So you look at someone's identity characteristics and if they hold certain identity characters, in this, in this case, cis, white, heterosexual men, then you don't advance those ideas. But those ideas are just ideas. They're not pinned to anybody's identity. And the consequences of that is that not only do we produce less knowledge, but the whole system, the integrity of the system is compromised. And when you compromise the integrity of the system and your general knowledge output, the, the erosion of public confidence in the institutions is commensurate with that. So that's just one, one problem, one macro problem which doesn't even begin to touch how the social justice with an uppercase S and J has its tentacles in virtually every feature of the society. How do you see that manifesting itself? either one of you? Boy, I see it manifesting itself in looking at ever smaller divisions when you look at someone to identify their whatever oppression variables they have, to not look at people as people, but whatever immutable characteristics they happen to possess. I look at that as not being able to have conversations with someone because you think that if someone possesses an identity characteristics, they can't have access to your lived experiences. And the word in philosophy we use is incommensurable, that Different people have different experiences and never the tide shall meet. And so there's no genuine communication. There's no truth sharing. There's no empathy. There's no compassion. There's no, when you lose the ability to have a conversation with someone, you also lose the ability to intervene in their cognitions and either shape their worldview or have their worldview shape your worldview. So it's a turn towards a kind of radical subjectivity in which everybody has their subjective lived experiences but the, the problem is, if that were actually true, we couldn't even be having this conversation. No. You, you're a Christian, I'm not a Christian. That, this conversation wouldn't even be possible. You couldn't interact commerce, you couldn't go to a, you couldn't do anything. 
So it couldn't possibly be true on the face of it. So I see this spilling outside the university and almost every, if not every facet of one's life, I see this manifest. I mean, you couldn't even prescribe somebody a, a medication if, if this idea of radical subjectivity is true. Well, in my universe, uh, you know, I would drink bleach and that cure. I mean, it, it's so crazy. It, the whole thing doesn't even make sense. It sounds like it's just totally insane and crazy, and that's the words we keep using, mm. that anybody would believe the idea. And this is really what social justice scholarship and ideology puts forth, that anybody could believe the idea that different identities produce different knowledge that can't be compared with one another, can't possibly be evaluated by it. There's no external place from which you could evaluate one being better than the other. There's no access to objective reality possible through our subjective experience that allows you to evaluate these things. And so genuinely that different identity groups per, like create different ideas and, and different knowledge, it's people can't People right. need to understand you, you, that that's literally what's going yeah, on. And that's it's why it's you so need crazy that people like that. think that we're making this up. We're not making this up. And in fact, he proved it because he wrote a paper from the point of view of a bitter divorced feminist and published it in a peer-reviewed journal, which is the only argument that we've ever had between each other. I got mad at him for wasting my time. It was a bitter divorced feminist woman that was into feminist spirituality. And I, I wrote a paper from the first-person perspective of a woman. A divorced woman. A divorced woman. Part of the purpose was to poke at the idea of a bad methodology, poetic inquiry and autoethnography. But part of the purpose was um, to make the point that you actually can speak from other perspectives. You actually can passably understand not just another ideology, but actually the lived experience, if you will, of another person. But all the way back to the beginning of the postmodern era, you have this idea that knowledge is produced inside of a culture. What we consider knowledge, what we consider true, and a lot of this is a subtle point. A lot of people think that postmodernism says there's no objective truth. That's not quite what it thinks. They say that there's no, there's no objective truth is true, what, truly what they think, because truth is a thing that exists in language. There is objective reality, we just can't say objectively true things about it. That's the actual view. Because everything we want to say about it and claim as a truth is embedded in language and in um, like scientific models and other ultimately linguistic constructs or social constructs or cultural constructs that are tied to the culture that produced them. So, you know, Pete mentioned filling a tooth a minute ago. Well, methods for filling a tooth if they're produced by white people or white men as the dentists that came up with those under uh, uh, the logical conclusion of this idea literally is knowledge that's only true within a white system a white masculine western system that may not be true in some other system and you actually see this there was a huge thing it got a lot of attention on youtube at south africa where they were saying that you know science is colonizing us and you can't say that our, our witchcraft where we have this belief that lightning will strike if people want it to against their enemies and you can't say that that's not just as scientific as uh western science right. it's just that's how we understand the world and right. so that has to be forwarded and i want to i want to add to that so 
I'm trying to think of a less pejorative word than insane. I can't seem to think of one, but as the synonym crazy, radical. as radical as that is, thank you. Yes. As radical as that is, here's what's even more insidious and radical. Those on the far left not only do not think that this is a problem, they, there's a little thing that I would urge you to Google called a progressive style guide in which they give terms that ought not to be used and can be used, should be used. And among the terms that can't be used are witchcraft, folklore, um, uh, there are a whole bunch about, a magic is another one. But the fact is the people who participate in these systems, a famous example is the Dobu tribe, tribes, that these folks, not only do they use this word, this is what they think they're doing. But the reason that's problematic is because it's a protective sheath that disallows any criticism of those systems. So you lock those people into systems in which they simply cannot be liberated by Western liberalism. They cannot be liberated by, they cannot be emancipated by enlightenment values, free speech, democracy, freedom of inquiry, freedom of the press. Even the things you're saying would be taken emancipating them in terms of Western values or Enlightenment values, that's taken as an attempt to colonize them with your truth as, right. as a white person and make them conform and to it, the white Western Western values have nothing to do with white people in terms of like their values, they're out there. They're not attached to my skin color or your, your eye color or height. They're right. universal values that I firmly believe are rationally derivable. What is the long-term result of what you've defined as research justice. It, it, for a society as a whole, over a longer period of time, if this is allowed to continue yeah, you would, it, without being challenged you, in some you, sense. Here's the result. This is not hyperbole. You would literally cut off, if this is allowed to go on unchecked, you would literally cut off entire domains of inquiry and research and production related to human flourishing solely because the people who came up with the ideas had certain identity markers, namely white, cis, hetero men. Maybe Western. you could, well, yeah, maybe you could say ably, or they had, you know, yeah. the 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 consequences. You literally carve off areas in which we could help ourselves grow and develop as a society and as individuals. Doesn't matter if it's in medicine or telecommunications, doesn't matter what it is, that's it. No more. No more inquiry. Sooner or later, this thing will burn itself out. But the natural consequence is that we put a huge stop sign right in the middle of progress. And I want to say one more thing. The same stop sign that's placed in the middle of technological and scientific progress is placed on the, the identical dialectical highway. In other words, the fact that you're not to allowed to say things and have certain conversations and critique things, etc. It's no coincidence that that happens in tandem with research justice. Right. These things are intrinsically linked together. Right. Right. And that's only one side, right? So yeah. you're talking about stopping progress by ceasing to cite, say, white Western male authors. But there's also the side that there becomes, I don't know exactly the right word to use for this, Mike Nana, calls it uh, truth. Mike, Nana Mike, Mike Nana is our fourth partner that worked with us. He's, he's making the films about us and he's the video 
uh, expert, creative expert with us, and he calls this truth denominations. You know, coming from a perspective of faith, you'll easily understand that all of a sudden people are making new denominations of what's considered true. And so now you don't just have not being able to cite white people, you have entire veins of literature where say black women cite each other maybe only forward their views only and nobody's allowed to to intervene or criticize them so they get their own line of literature that oh, this is this is the science of black women and then this is the science of white men and this is the science of this and that and the other and those things can't criticize one another and so you start getting denominations of truth but that's exactly what the Enlightenment was trying to undo is to make truth a universal phenomena that's outside of all of us. It was, okay, we're going to bounce our ideas off of the most objective source possible, reality, and just keep what, what survives the process. And now it's, okay, if you are any oppressed identity, we can't cite, or you, you can't criticize that, that idea. So if they get some spurious idea, and it goes four generations in the literature, Nothing stops that from just growing and, and metastasizing. metastasizing and becoming its own new domain of, of completely bogus thought. It's exactly the condition that we had driven mostly by faith in the pre-modern period. Before the modern period came along and said, wait, no, with the correspondence theory of truth. We're going to see if true, what's true corresponds to reality. That's how we'll judge. Not does it correspond to my lived experience of whether it's faith, whether my scripture, whether whatever it happened to be at the time, my my traditions of, of my local you know community, but they're trying to push back to that. So it's almost like a recreation of the pre-modern period, but based on identity characteristics rather than than say doctrine or or before that tribe. Right now, I think that during the Reformational period, it was the sense that look, we have been under the guise of mythos that has left what we would understand as the Christian faith. That's right. And we begin to, to get into things that are so outside the purview of Scripture that it's not even close to what Scripture actually says. Oh, and by the way, can we just get Scripture in our own vernacular language? So that was more or less some of the things that began to an inquiry of knowledge. And as we left the monarchical episcopate concept and we began to, to go down to the idea of that each person is expected to, in their, own, in their own person, individually be responsible for the pursuit of knowledge and their pursuit of understanding what truth is. Objectivity, you know, with some objectivity. We are now, from what I see, starting to move into, and would you say this, that we're starting to move into a period now where we are bringing back in a sense of mythos into oh, research yeah. justice and into this whole... Yeah, a very grid. particular sense, I would yeah. say that. Okay. In, in what way would you say that? Go ahead. Um, so, almost the postmodern worldview is one in which they, they deny access to objective truth and almost want to have like this idea that experience is king. Right. Right? And so there's, this, there's an elevation. You hear phrases like the noble savage and all of this. So this becomes the noble other, the noble oppressed person becomes this kind of mythical standard that can't be judged or criticized or whatever. We have to elevate their their beliefs to the status of Yeah, not, and not just their beliefs, their epistemology as well. The, the, yeah, the, whatever, whatever approach they use to make their claims, whether right. that's 
even really counts as an epistemology or not. We have to elevate that to the same status as, as every other. And um, certainly this is, this is held onto in, in, a, in a mythological way, right? Um, how? The systemic thing, systemic racism, systemic sexism, systemic oppression, as a pervasive force that exists all throughout society. Now, the difference, of course, is that it's not calling upon mythological figures, you know, Zeus for the Greeks, or, you know, these kinds of deities out there, or a deity. It's now talking about it in terms of how things are spoken about. It's kind of a, it's more materialist in that sense than, than spiritual. But the mythology is that society has these mysterious forces that work within it through how things are spoken about that create power dynamics and can make people conform to different things and everybody is kind of subjected to those in a, in a very kind of puppet-like way, the performativity idea. You're performing the role society is scripting for you and that it's in, very mythological in that sense. The, the deities aren't like you know, with the, with the Greeks, you had Zeus and he was the god of thunder and the god of this, and you had Artemis and the god of, you know, you had the god of the moon, the god of the hovers, all these different ideas, and there was some deity that controlled it. And now it's that you have, instead of a god, you have the way of speaking uh, uh, that's produced by this ethnicity or this sexuality or this, you have, it's a way of speech becomes the mythological object instead of it being personified in a character, but the underlying psychological architecture is identical. Is there any way that maybe there's a sense in which there are two roads that are being created right now for humanity to move down, and I say that we're not the ones that are trying to create these two roads, to where we have the reality of science that will be figured out by artificial intelligence as that is developed, as that is you know, allowed to do its thing, if you will, to figure out things that we had barriers in being able to figure out. But yet then, so we have this road of science, which we will put in the hands or within the control and the understanding of intelligence that is beyond what we are capable of. But yet the social road and the social realities, that there must be a mythology that is created in, in essence to be able to get us away from our tribes, our customs, our the things that get in the way of us being able to get along with each other and so forth, that this is another road that we need to take. You see anything? Um, yeah, that's kind of actually what I was speaking to. Um, the, the, this that's, has been described by a philosopher Kolokowski as being a technological core, that's the scientific way, and a mythological core. And it's two ways of thinking about the world. And in the, the difference, the key difference between these two, to oversimplify everything, is that the, the technological core is where you can question and pick at everything. The mythological core is where you're not allowed to question. It's all conveyed through story and right. allegory. And it, you, it's like the, the analogy that's given for that is it's like a spider web. And if you pull a single strand, the whole thing will collapse because its architecture depends on the whole thing being there and connected. So you can't pick out one idea that's false and say, well, maybe there's some truth here, but this thing's wrong. You have to accept the mythos in its entirety. And there's this, this story-based thinking that, that's kind of an interpretive mode is, is how people think along those lines. To be contrasted with the scientific mindset is anything goes. You can pick anything apart. We're only going to keep what's true and we're going to try to find coherence around that. And those two things are definitely in, in competition. Uh, as far as what's going on in that social thing, 
I think what we had going on for a long time was that we had this kind of what what Jonathan Rauch and, uh, is a writer, a journalist, called liberal science, which was this idea that knowledge is going to be produced along these lines, and we're all going to kind of write the myth along that path and adjust it as we go. That's the liberal approach. We left the pre-modern era for the, the modern liberal era, and we're going to adjust the story according to our current state of knowledge, where we're allowed to pick things apart. And now what you have is you've had the postmodern era enter. And the postmodernists said, no, 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 these things are all what we call meta-narratives, and we're not going to accept any meta-narrative, a sweeping explanation for how things work, or a unifying story that we can understand. Instead, we're going to tear this one down, and at first, the high deconstructionists, Foucault, Derrida, Lyotard, etc., thought, okay, we're just going to tear down, tear down, tear down. And then in the 90s, all of a sudden you had this new crop of thinkers that were, in a sense, their scholarly descendants who said, no, we're not going to tear down identity. We're not going to tear down oppression based on identity or the experience of oppression. We're going to focus, they said, the postmodern said, let's focus on experience. Well, this is the experience that matters. It's oppression and domination. And they've built their new myth around that. They've tore down the old religions systematically through deconstruction and now they're rebuilding their own new one which is all based on the elevation and sacralization of oppression as mediated through language which therefore has to be just examined in the most minute detail and scrubbed of anything that's not inclusive enough or that doesn't promote diversity or equity or that doesn't that could possibly offend anybody. Anything that could be offensive, anything that might marginalize or contribute to marginalization has to be cleaned out. And there's this whole new faith that's built up in, in, in the material realm that doesn't call upon you know, spiritual entities, but it's believed in a spiritual way. So in the, in the creation of mythos, what is it that are some of the essential characteristics of that? If you're gonna be creating new be, myths. Before, be, may I go sure. back to something else? So, my take on how do we navigate this, the answer to that, the only answer I see is dialogue. I simply do not see any other way. While we have the chance. While yeah, we, while have, we the have the chance. chance. Because if not, our, we already see it in the academy. Our speech rights are taken away. It's a, constant, yeah. it's a continued erosion of we don't want to offend this person. We can't say this to this person. You don't talk about protected classes, which, you know, I'm, for, I don't know if you knew this, I'm forbidden to render my opinion about protected classes, but I can talk about, you know, animal rights or the environment, because then, I mean, it's the continued erosion. The only way that, it's not even that we adjudicate a claim or a problem, it's that we can have a conversation with someone so that we can know what they're talking about. So I, need, I, I legitimately want to know what people believe and why they believe it. And the way to do that is, let me, let me even take a step back further. Portland sure, State University sure. had a, an event in which only people of color were allowed to participate in the event. Now, Portland State University is a public university. I called a friend of mine, I will not say his name, Qual very qualified to answer this question. I said, I cannot believe this is legal. How is it possible? He said, yep, it's totally legal, but it is ill-advised for the following reason. The white supremacists could have their own little gathering, and then they could say, well, only white people, blonde hair, blue eyes, or what have you, they're allowed to ask questions. And so, what we, what, 
the whole idea of, I mean, in the symposium, Socrates did that. He threw the women and the slaves out of the room at the beginning of the dialogue, right? So anytime people aren't allowed to engage, interact, talk, and you can put any saccharine terms you want on it. You can say, oh, this is a listening session or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, you're still creating an environment in which you're not allowing a dialogue. You're not allowing a genuine conversation between people who have substantive differences of opinion and that only ends in one way and that's blood that's the only way that ends it's the constant othering of people constant tribalism assigning higher confidence values to your own beliefs the creation of your own ecosystem your own mythology within that ecosystem casting out as, as heretics people out of it having speech conventions blasphemy heresy etc all of those are defense mechanisms to keep the ideology in place. And what we see happening, we also see it with demonetization. We also see it with the tech giants. But why did that happen in the first place? Because it has its roots in the university, which Jim was just explaining. It has its roots in theory and in scholarship, in these bodies of literature that people point to. Look, we can't have this misogynation, research, which whatever monikers, whatever fancy labels they want to Got, put it in the guise of. Right, so there's almost an invention of language, an invention of concepts that continues to be created. Uh, I mean, I've heard so many, so many people have come to me and said, well, Mike, I've never heard until just a couple of years ago that I'm a cisgendered right. white. So there are ideas, concepts, and so forth that are being created in order to match and to help to define the movement that is taking place, which as I think as you've properly identified is more of a, religi a religious movement. Yeah, it is. And, and maybe this is a, a segue into the reality tunnel tell idea. Me, tell me what you, we had talked about that a little bit earlier, a reality tunnel, and, and where does the tunnel start and where does it go? And That's a great question. So let's, let's take a look at this table. So up until very, very recently, and still virtually everybody, if not everybody, in, who actively works in the discipline of philosophy calls it a worldview, a Weltanschauung from the German. Like, these folks have their worldview, these folks have their worldview, and there are incommensurable worldviews, to use that word again. This person has a worldview that I can't understand. There's just like an incommensurable, why did you get divorced, incommensurable differences. They're different, we're just too different, we couldn't stay married. So we got divorced, we separated. I really, really like, I got this term from Peter Lindbergh, who has the Intellectual Explorers podcast. I really like this idea of a reality tunnel. A reality tunnel, the idea behind that, it's like a worldview, but it both gives it a physical, almost a physical placement and a physical texture. And it also, it's like, you, it, it kind of um, delimits what you can see. So think about this table. If this table had little holes in it, and that those holes went all the way down, those holes would be reality tunnels. Now, in this reality tunnel, you have your belief, I'm, I don't wanna put, put words in your mouth, like Jesus Christ is son of God, and whatever you believe right. in your reality tunnel. He has his reality tunnel. We can pluck people off the street, you know, maybe they're, they have some other reality tunnel. But the reason why the word reality tunnel is so much better than worldview, and I just find this fascinating, is that if you use the word worldview, you don't get a graphic depiction of how similar certain worldviews are to another. I would argue to you that you and I are 
far closer on if you look at this in terms of reality tunnel occupying a physical place. You and I are far closer on that than the atheist who, who participates in a social justice worldview. What I would say is I wouldn't want to trivialize our differences in any way uh, and that those differences are real and that we both desire conversation right. and even spirited engaging debate about those ideas. Right. One of the differences is that I care about you. Well, I care about you too. And I care about what you're doing. And we need to talk about these things and we should talk about these things. And these dialogues should be open and public and heard. Right. Where both sides are able, and even whether it be in this or in, in other venues, that we are able to disagree. Right. And strongly. And, and then have drinks, among other things. Exactly. Yeah. And if you're Baptist, it's you know a cold glass of tea, and maybe you're drinking a beer. If or if you're, you're a Mormon, it's if no caffeine. It's, it's an alcohol. It's a mojito and whatever, yeah, yeah. or fine wine. But <laughs> within that concept, is that strangely what is beginning to happen is that while I would have agreements within that quote reality tunnel that we would say within a confessional standpoint, within a biblical concept and with you within the atheist worldview that you have, that you're, we're both though trying to perceive objective truth. Yes. Both of us are like, well, we need to have an argument about what is objective truth and how do you right. find that? So, but we have, I have Christian friends that would believe in terms of epistemics and in terms of what we believe are our truth claims. And you would have atheist friends that would both agree over here that what we're saying is destroying and oppressing people. Right. So they are in a convergence of another reality tunnel on that side, but both of them are actually in agreement of creating a new religious ethos. That is correct. That will not bind them in an understanding of objective truth through the understanding of a correspondence theory, but is in agreement on something that is mythological right. and not true. Right. So where you and I would actually say, right. We want to have those arguments and we want to know where we disagree, right. but we also want to know where we can agree so we can actually exist to next week. And we also want to know, so... And have a functioning society. Right, the, right, that's yeah. the key, right? So the commonalities there, I would argue, are constitutive of the tunnel. Yes. The, the, they're what cause your tunnel to be and my tunnel to be, not only to be closer to one another, but to be, period. So there are certain core values that you and I would share. Right. But so here's the kind of the radical honesty part about this. I have very difficult, I'm speaking for me and, and not for Jim, I, I have a very difficult time personally participating in a friendship with someone who does not have those same fundamental values of human flourishing, um, being a person of your word, being honest about what you say and what you feel and in, in your engagements with people, speaking in a forthright manner yeah. with someone else. I would say th that those, the beliefs that I have and that um, I believe are true, uh, that would move me in, in a way to definitely, you know, we, we think, think about it last night and let's be open. We, we went all, all out to dinner last night and 
in the four blocks walking back to where we are right now right. in the hotel, we had several amazing experiences right. in four blocks. <laughs> right. We uh, New York. We uh, were in New York, and I think we're on on Park, and a completely naked man walks past us. This is like 11 o'clock at night, uh, just wearing a sack around his genitals and just not even as I thought it was on Park Avenue sheath yes yeah just you know yeah. right there and no one was batting an eye and so forth like holy cow nothing the second thing is as we came down the next street uh, towards where we're all staying is that then we ran across a man that was sexually assaulting yeah, a woman that's correct shoving her in a car trying to shove her into a car and we decided to intervene yeah now I want you to think about that for a second yeah is that all of a sudden we saw a problem, even though we have a different belief structure, right. and we we have fundamental disagreements on some things. Yeah. But we saw a problem. We said we need to do something right. about this right away. We shared that common value, right. something that we had to do. And we also acted differently to it, not on the basis of our religious orientation. Right. I call the police. You and Ryan wanted to jump in. And separate the guy. I have I no idea who you're talking about this morning, person. But oh, anyway, no. go ahead. But you, so, but we all, but the, our responses yeah. to that were we need to deal with it. Yes, right. Yeah. But there and was we a all sense agreed of, that the other person's response was appropriate for that person. Correct. Yeah. Correct. I mean, at the very top level, what you have then is a worldview that sees that there's objective stuff, and you have a reality tunnel if you want instead that says that everything is subjective. Correct. And. The everything is subjective versus, you know, you could think of like cross tunnels or whatever, where some stuff is subjective and that matters. I don't think anybody really denies that, but that there is an objective. But the, the idea that there is absolutely no access to anything that's objectively true or right. some that higher order principle be, that's not is so alien. It's lunatic. Right. I mean, you have to be a lunatic to believe that. Right. And you have to be in a community of other lunatics who also believe that to keep that belief reinforced. Right. It's so utterly outside, not only anything that ought to be normative, but you have to work hard to believe that. Well, it's also, it cheats. It cheats. It yeah. cheats, because if everything's subjective, you can automatically discount anybody else's argument, anybody else's opinion. I was like, oh, that's just your subjective opinion. Right. Right. Like, if I dropped my cell phone off of this skyscraper, I can tell you what's going to happen to it. It's going to tumble. It's going to hit hopefully just the street and nobody or their car. It's going to be destroyed because there is an objective reality. And no matter what I believe, I cannot possibly believe my cell phone to float halfway back up right. from, you know, all the way down and back into my hand, no matter what. But if you tell me, if you truly believe in full radical subjectivity, that that only is a manifestation of, of my subjective opinion situatedness how on i have there is no answer to that except to say okay and, and i want to add one more thing to that the sure. reason that i think this reality tunnel is so dangerous it's not when you say this reality the, tunnel, the, 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 the reality one, the tunnel the, one. The, the radical subjectivity radical subjectivity social justice intersectional intersectionality the reason that i think this is so dangerous is not only because they won't have a conversation. Yeah. And absent conversation, there's no belief intervention, there's no understanding what other people believe. Right. It's, it's eventually bloodshed. But the, the reason that I think it's so dangerous is that, look, if someone doesn't want to have a conversation with somebody, hey, they don't want to have a conversation with them. There's no book we could write to teach someone who's 
hell-bent on not having a conversation how to have a conversation. But the point is those people, not only do they not want to have a conversation, but they don't even want us to have a conversation. Right. They don't even think we that's, should be talking to each other. Talking. That's why we're talking. Right. And to be held hostage to a bunch, of, and I would argue that this is not, this is far from a majority view. This is a, this is a, a not only is it a minority, I don't know if it's a fringe minority, but it's a small minority of people. But it is a small minority of hyper-vocal people yeah. who have gained ascendancy. This ideology has gained ascendancy and they have gained, they certainly control the academic institutions. They've infiltrated tech, look at James Moore, the, I mean, the examples abound. We simply cannot be held hostage to people who want to disallow a conversation. Right. We cannot let that happen. Right. If we do that, this will be another Iraq. And what's happened is that they have come into your institutions, they've come into science, they've come into math, they've come right. into geology, they've come into the, the creation of, of the gender studies and so everything. forth. And, and now, everything. And now, within the epistemics of everything. So in other words, the, the foundational groundworks of how we actually understand what is true right. is being dissolved, and as well then, it's come into the Christian faith but not just the Christian faith, but in faith in general. So it's come into, and this is where I would say that my friends that are in uh, both Protestant Evangelical Christianity, Reformed Christianity, need to understand that this is not just something that, oh, we've just got to protect our house and it'll all be okay. No, actually you'll be cast out more on your island, you know, and so that what you need to do is fight this at all levels. Understand that this is coming into Protestant Evangelical Christianity, Reformed Christianity, it's coming into Roman Catholicism, it's also coming into Islam. It's, and it's already been in Judaism for a number of years. So with this entire concept, what's coming in is the concept of victimization. Mm -hmm. And That's Jonathan Haidt's victim versus dignity culture. Correct. And I, mean, I was talking to, to, to Jim the other day and saying that, look, we used to do a program within our company called the Oz Principle. And it was, it was well used by Hilton and by different cruise lines and so forth is how to avoid self-victimization in the workplace. Right. So you're a productive team, that you don't make excuses and you charge forward and you do what's necessary. Well, that's died off now because now the objective is victimization. That's right. And so... And you gain currency, victim currency, status, you gain... Right. Yep. So in essence, what happens then is that if you have a victimization uh, mindset that then is creeping into business into finance this is where uh, unfortunately you can't turn on the tv watch sports watch anything without seeing uh ads from right. razor companies right. or from whomever virtue signaling to the world oreo cookies or, or, or well explain what you i, I want to make sure what you're saying in context oreo cookies came out with yeah so they so so uh, they came out with the what is it the non with the what is it they call the pronoun the, cookies the pronoun the pronoun cookies yeah so that you could advertise your pronouns so you could virtue signal and use use their product to virtue signal you know that essentially that you're on the team that recognizes yes the, the critical gender theory. yeah the very people who profess in in their reality tunnels and their reality tunnels that don't profess to hate capitalism. Uh, they're all over this idea of the or of the non what is the prone no no what display your pronoun oreo i mean it, it, I, you know i i don't know i so you're looking at radical tolerance in in a, in essence of looking at tolerance within uh, an understanding that there is negative tolerance and there's positive tolerance 
and negative tolerance would be the traditional Christian understanding of, I disagree with what you do, but I still love you and I love the humanity that's within you, but I disagree with where you stand on some things. The positive side of tolerance is not only must I agree with what you're doing, but I must praise you and be vocal about it. Yeah, you, yeah. <clears throat> and excuse me, not, you must participate in that. And you must participate in it. And the right. thing that's interesting to me is that I think, <clears throat> I don't know if you want to get into this so, so controversial, but I think the trans issue is fascinating for that. <clears throat> excuse me, because Rebecca Tuvel published an article in Hypatia that was majorly controversial. And the basic idea of the argument was if you could identify as a, the gender in which, or the, even the sex, depending on how you define it, that you were born into, why couldn't you do the same thing racially? And she used the example of Rachel Dolenzal. Dolenzal. Yeah. And I think that's a, I think that's a very legitimate argument. She, she took exactly the arguments for, for transgender identity as they're put forth in critical theory of gender and use the exact same arguments to, to give a theory of transracial identity. And this got Hypatia firebombed. Yeah, and, and I hate Conceptually, to, not literally. So, well, trans species as well. Th this is what philosophers should do. Right. We should be asking these questions. It's a very reasonable question to ask. If someone born with a penis can self-identify as a woman, then why cannot someone who's born with blonde hair and blue eyes identify as, as an African-American. That's a extraordinarily, that's, in fact, that's your job. And, and as a matter of fact, just even being able to have the conversation about the societal long-term impacts right. of adopting these new social constructs. And I want, I, I just have to follow up one more thing. <laughs> that's fine. I follow yeah. up with one thing. So now we're seeing, you know, the, the paper about a guy who self-identifies as a hippopotamus. There's been a guy. Not me, but go ahead. There's an actual paper about that. There's a guy you can you can YouTube it. A man who wanted to live as a goat, and the guy had goat prostheses made, and he hung out with yeah. goats, and he asked yeah. people. I actually have no problem with guys wanting to be goats or self-identifying as. But I don't really care what anybody self-identifies. None of my business. My problem is if you're asking me to acknowledge that in a way that. I mean, there were just certain, okay, so let's take another step back. So if it's the case that, and I think this is my job, this is what we should do. We should be asking these questions. What are the limits of self-identification? That black British rapper, I think American born rapper Zuby, self-identified as a woman for like five minutes and then broke the women's powerlifting record and then I think he did the same thing, deadlifting, benching, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Okay, we need to have that conversation. What about if, a, if a, you know, someone identifies as a, someone born as a woman, you know, born as a man, who then at some stage of transition or no transition, or maybe they just identify as a woman, goes into an MMA, mixed martial arts, we need to have that conversation. Are there limits of self -identify? Can I self-identify as a zebra? I mean, right. I, I'm sorry to offend, and I'm sorry to ask such an asinine question, but there's no, okay. It's exasperating for me because it should be so obvious to everybody. You first need some kind of ethical infrastructure in which to look at this. Now, maybe Christians have the Bible and they 
have some kind of exegesis. They look at this scripture and, you know, Matthew. But how do we navigate that as a society? Well, the first way we navigate as a society is you have to be allowed to ask the question. Like, that is square one. If you cannot ask the question, there is no navigating it. Right. There's no navigation. There's no way to figure out what to do. There's no way to reach a communal consensus on how we deal with people who are 25 years old who want to play on the 13-year-old's softball team. Right. Because they self-identify as a 13-year-old girl. Right. I mean, it's, it's absolutely obliterated women's sports. It's beginning to. Not, not yet, but it's beginning to. I think that there is some discussion now. Like we, we actually have to talk about this. Yeah, so I, I would argue, since we can't talk about it in the university because it's a protected class, I'll give you my answer to the question. Um, if it, you can apply the lens of fairness and you can rationally derive that, for example, through the philosopher John Rawls, and ask yourself, is this fair? And if the answer to that is no, then you do not allow it. If the answer to that is yes, it doesn't mean you should allow it. Maybe you should have a further conversation. Right. And I'll give you an example. Uh, with whether or not someone can, I don't know if you've seen recently when you go into the bathrooms, they're almost all men and women signs now, and they've taken them off. I have no problem with that. In fact, from the little I know, and they could be cultural reasons, I know it takes women longer to go to the bathroom, dresses something. So I have no problem with having, you know, if there are three doors with single stall toilets, having two of those for women. I mean, that's a, conver- that's a kind of a distasteful, vulgar conversation that I'd rather not have, but it's part of this larger inquiry into how we, we look at and deal with, as a society, differences. And I would argue, and I'm, the hate is gonna fly when I say this, but the lens that we should look at in sports is fairness. And if it is unfair, we ought not to allow it. The problem is that people will say, well, then you deny the agency or the gender status of those people who self-identify as such. Okay, okay. We had to weigh out, the, we had to hierarchically prioritize those values, and I hierarchically prioritize fairness. Right. And what I would say is that, you know, as someone who coached uh, tennis for a number of years at a, at a decently high level, is that I deeply appreciate the women's game. Women's tennis is different in many ways than men's tennis. And the women professional tennis players or those that I've coached that have gone to NCAA you know, competition and so forth, but understand that there's a, a different level that's right. there. And it's not meant to demean the women's game in right. any way. It's, it's, it's different. Right. Uh, and you would understand that, that men's tennis is a different level and there are different, I mean, yes, the tennis court is the same way. Basically, the rules of tennis, the last person to get the ball in the court wins every time. <laughs> pretty much, if you break it down to it, that's what happens. But the way that you achieve that is going to be different because of power, strength, speed. Right. Now, if you're saying that women must in some way be able to compete, if men cross over and start competing into the, into the women's game, it's going to radically transform that and, in, in fact, destroy it. Have you ever seen an actual person born a man who at whatever transition or no transition participated in an MMA fight with a woman? Sadly, yes. Yep. It's a beating. Yes, and, and actually if you take a look back in the 1970s, Renee Richards, um, who had you know, transition surgery and so forth and also became Martina Navratilova's coach later on, played on the women's tour, I believe in his 
his her mid 40s. And uh, yeah, and so so the, I think that the key there is, and this is the this is perhaps the closest of the differentiation from our reality tunnels. I'm not telling anybody they can't self-identify as a woman. Just he can self-identify as a hippopotamus if he wants. Who? I yeah, can't. you've articulated the answer to the question. Yeah, go ahead. You said that you don't care, and I agree, what anybody identifies as for themselves. But you do disagree that you have to be compelled to acknowledge that. Right. And if you have, there you go. if That's you have, claim. yeah, if right. you have a sporting agency that is saying, okay, we have to acknowledge your self-identification. Now that is, com they're compelled to have to acknowledge somebody else's self-identification. You should have the freedom to identify her. You want to be a zebra, fine, be a zebra, man. Um, but I'm, I, you can't, I, if I want to, if I feel like acknowledging, oh, my friend Pete, he's a zebra, that's fine. That's literally fine. I can, I can choose also to acknowledge it. Right. But nobody can be compelled to acknowledge somebody's yeah, self-identification. And I also, I really do want to know, what are the limits of self-identification? And what are the limits of asking me? But you can't have yeah, it seems like You can't have that conversation. It seems like you, it's clear though, there are no limits to self-identification, but there are limits to compelling someone to go ah, along with somebody else. there else's. must be some limit to self-identification because, be, uh, because of the Rebecca Tuvel incident, right? So, so, well, sure. so there are, right? So there are- That's in that reality tunnel though. That's in that reality tunnel, that's right. That's one that weighs out different forms of oppression differently. Right. And so you can do the transgender thing for various theoretical reasons, but you can't do the transracial thing because that would imply that it's possible to genuinely understand racial oppression from a position that didn't experience that's it. That's exactly right. correct. And so that's the thing. And this is actually a huge important point that most people don't understand. They hear critical race theory. They don't really know what's going on. They hear intersectionality. They get the, you know, the saccharine description. They get they get the brochure. Looks good. Social justice. Well, yeah. I mean, okay. And you know, we've 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 the problem. What's the problem? Well, we haven't listened to black voices, for example, enough. So we have to forward their voices. Well, okay. Yeah. You, so so far, you're kind of going along with it. We we have kind of there's nothing unreasonable as about if that. All people that are black think the same. And so well, well but right. so the thing is, is the thing that they're asking for sounds fair, reasonable. But the thing that they want is not what they're asking for. It is they want much more than what they're actually asking for. They don't when they say you need to we need to forward black voices and listen to more black voices because here's this example of where we didn't and this bad thing happened. Here's this example where the church ignored black voices and this bad thing happened. Here's this example where doctors didn't listen to black people, didn't take them seriously and their infant mortality rates are higher. Example example is we have to listen more. And those but are they, all reasonable. Those things. are totally reasonable. The request to listen Absolutely is fine. reasonable. The, Request to shut up and listen right. is a different Correct. ask. It is a completely different ask. Correct. It is shut up, don't uh, shut up, listen, and do not criticize. We are automatically right. Our lived experience of oppression, this is called standpoint epistemology. Our lived experience of oppression gives us knowledge you can't possibly have. And there's a kernel of truth. They have experienced something that you haven't if they are getting oppressed in some way or perceive it. The problem is, is causes are difficult to suss out. I was up here in New York last week. There was a thunderstorm. It canceled a bunch of flights. I was out on the jetway on the plane for like an hour. The guy in front of me was getting ornery. 
and started grumbling and he's getting on his cell phone and calling people and grumbling. I'm staring on my phone, literally the seat behind him at the weather map and I see this horrendous thunderstorm circling the city in two out of the four cardinal directions in kind of a, a L shape. And he's on the phone. I don't know what the airline's doing. They're jerking us around. They, it's not weather. It can't be weather. The airline's lying and saying it's weather, but there's no weather. It's not raining here. His lived experience is it's not raining here. Right. It can't be weather. But he's acting and that the airline must be oppressing him in some way. It, this wasn't racially motivated. The dude was just this white redneck guy. And but that was his his interpretation right. of the experience was factually incorrect. That's right. And that's the problem. So you listen to people, you take them seriously, and there have been problems doing that in the past, and there are lingering problems with that that haven't been fully corrected. So you do a better job of listening and taking seriously, but the rigorous investigation of what's really happening, the weather radar, has right. to still be there. Right. That's why we need science to reel those claims in. So and I that's was, why you need universality of science. That's exactly correct. That's why correct. you have to be able to say, it doesn't matter who did the experiment. Did a white person do it? Did a black person do it? Was it a woman? Gay. Was it a dog? Were they gay? Was it a gay dog? Was it a <laughs> robot? It, it, if the answer is the same, the answer is the same. That's one science. It's convergence, yeah. yeah the, and, that, and even able to have those conversations as well, not just from a scientific perspective, but also from an understanding of, of what will be the better thing for society, which is what they've already actually determined for us. That's why I think a lot of this is happening, is there's a determination that this is the best thing for society is to move in this direction. Right. We're going here and you must come along with us. That's right. So in essence, you have, um, I mean, we had the Inquisition back you know, at the time of the Reformation and so forth, and, and it was a forcibility of saying, you must believe these things, and if you don't, then the, the great arm of justice is going to come right. to you from the church itself, enacted through the civil authorities. And in essence, that's really what's create, being created here, is a religious dogma that's correct. That, must, that is created that you must follow. Right, if you so don't, you can't like get a call. Yeah. Right. Can you please just go ahead and create your catechism so we can know exactly, exactly what it is? So, so, just know it for what it, it is, and then we, right. have, we have mechanisms in place called secularism and right. the you know, philosophical sense that deals with that. Perfect. Show us your canon. Yeah. So we understand what your canon there it, it, it is. It looks like, uh, you know, gender, place, and culture academic journal, right. for example, was, was one book of their canon. Um, right. That's the thing. is, And people don't understand because the things they ask for seem so not just fair and reasonable, but the kind of thing that a good society should be doing. Like, right. wow, we really have been screwing some people over for a long time in our society. We need to fix that. But that, again, it's such a huge different thing to say that that implies you can't discuss, criticize, argue, disagree. Like you just have to accept that their claim is right because they feel like they haven't been listened to in the past. Those aren't like, listen to me because you haven't listened and believe everything I say are very different yeah, asks. I, I, and they come with a raft of other things, including, oh, you don't want to do social justice? Well, we have three diversity classes you have to pass to get a degree. So either you're going to fake it, which is what most students who aren't fools are doing now. They just, right. they know the right answers. They know how to get, the classes are jokes. Right. You know how to just tell the teacher what they want to hear. Right. Oh, but if you want a college degree, you're going to be subjected at least to this many class hours of sitting through people kind of trying to teach this stuff in you. And if you don't have a college degree, by the way, you're going to have a hard time getting into any of the large number of uh, you know high tech industry jobs, which are becoming the backbone of the new economy because robots can do a lot of things. But it's that not just that, Jim. It's also the fact that 
you know, if you even want to exist as a company now, you sure, know, sure, you, sure. You must pull this line. Yeah, they've gone otherwise. In. Yes, go ahead. Otherwise, they'll cancel you. Correct. They cancel will, culture. Yeah. They'll boy. They, they'll pull something like a boycott, but it's much nastier. Um, of course, I mean, it sort of backfires. You can look at the Chick Fil A example. It's great. Oh. Their stock just has. But there's other ways of doing that, and of course you of see course. municipalities then try to ban Chick-fil-A and right. so forth because of their views right. from having a franchise in this airport or this mall and so forth because you're bringing hate in, mm -hmm. you know? So in, instead of us being able to have delicious, delicious chicken sandwiches from Monday until Saturday, you know, <laughs> you don't get any at all because of the actual views that you have. There's your catechism, by the way, is hate with a capital H. That's their, that's their Satan. That's their South Star, if you will, instead of North Star. The thing that they're trying to get away from is hate. Not, you know, I hate nachos or uh, I'm being literally hateful to you, but this ambiguous systemic magic force called hate that exists right under the surface of all of society so that the existence of a chicken restaurant that's owned by people who for whatever their personal beliefs or reasons are, decide that they want to dump their money into stuff that goes against some gay agenda or whatever, fine. Now that's a manifestation of hate, which ultimately means not inclusion, which ultimately means some kind of manifest evil that they think the society is rife with yeah, and they're looking for. No, no, you go ahead. Well, I, you know, just, you know, to kind of make light of this situation is that, like, look, if, if I had a choice, and my team knows this, between eating at Chick-fil-A or Chipotle, even though I believe the folks that are in control of Chipotle have a lot of Marxist views and are pretty adamant about it, I actually would choose Chipotle because I like it more. And that's just me in terms of personal taste. All right, they're communist Marxists, but I love their sofrito salad and so forth. We'll see with the extra guacamole and a yeah, little bit exactly of Yeah, that's exactly what I get salsa. over there too. I, I just it. discovered that place. I love oh it. Oh my gosh, we actually have something in common. I know, it's another thing. Humanity. The reality tunnels are. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, and I, you know, Chick-fil-A is good. It's okay, but it's not my first choice, but it's not because of that. And what you end up doing is you have people that end up bringing their economic realities to restaurants and making them succeed right. because of their ideological realities. So the personal yeah, so, is political. It's correct. behind everything. The, the, so to I make everything political. I, Who wants everything to be political? I, Nobody. I want to th throw this out to your Christian audience. So I would argue to you that if my project fails, Christianity is going to take a massive hit. Uh, well, and I'm willing to unpack that, but I, I think one one thing is is that, you know, I, I could think back to the time that I first heard your presentation. And which I one? Well, the one that was done at Portland State University that is intersectionality religion. Okay. And it was yourself, Helen Pluckrose, Jim, uh, and then a gentleman that came into the middle of the presentation that needed to find a seat. So I'll never forget that. Right, so and, right. and, and you know, so I, I, I've listened to that literally probably four to five hundred times to get into my head. It's what I do. Whoa. I have I have the voice of R.C. Sproul in my head because I've listened to his material literally tens of thousands of times. James Whoa. White is in my head. Um, you know, I don't wear bow ties, thank God. But you know, there is there's a necessity. You unlock the thing that everybody else knew that I was trying to say is that there's something that's rather and people that were having conversations with me back 
in the, the, the winter and spring of 2018 is that there is a religious methodology to intersectionality. That's right. And Summer Yeager uh, of Sheologians as well said that the same thing. But we were trying to figure it out and trying to dissect it, and all of a sudden, here you came. And all of a sudden, I mean, but I wanted to listen to it at least 20 to 30 times before I even shared the link with anybody else. Because I really wanted to think through it and then as well prepare to say, look, there's some things that Jim might say that you might find you know, challenging and so right. forth that you would completely disagree with, but they're absolutely onto it and they actually have it. They've got what we've been trying to articulate about intersectionality and this entire mess. Because we saw that because we came out of the new atheist movement. Yeah, we watched a religious movement grow up within atheism itself. Right, and so within new atheism as well, that became actually a religious model. Mm -hmm. You know, so. You know, and we, we took the same tools of identification, the, tool, the diagnostic tools, right. the tools to identify the uh, communal, um, uh, the, uh, the religious, what is the, uh, the psychology of religion model? Psychology models. of religion model. It's models, identical. Yeah. I mean, it was just a perfect fit, and we, were, we just happened to be ideally situated for it. And as Nietzsche said, it, it happened right under the noses of the masters. You know, it was just so funny to me, and Dave Silverman, from the former head of American Atheists, is a good friend of mine and I remember sitting down and having dinner with him and I'm saying you you've your your target is way off you're still in the old gods I'm telling you it's happening right under your nose you're not even seeing it I'm telling you you need to listen to me yep yep right yep so I saw that actually before I actually even viewed what you were doing with the film with Mike Nadia and Helen Pluckrose and right away I was off to the races. And then discovering what you've done with the, you know, the scholarly hoax project, right. if you will. But what I saw within that is that, you know, there is the necessity for us to begin to have conversations. And as well, this is something that you're deep diving in on this particular issue. I mean truly. And I know a lot of other Christians, I don't want to name them all, that as soon as I started sending that link out and so forth, like, holy cow, they really have it. Um, they really got it down, and it has helped immensely. Here's the other bizarre turn of events of this whole thing. Because of whatever is happening, and I, I cannot stand when people use the word liberalism or liberals, because this is absolutely not liberalism. Let's call it for what it is. This is the far left. So for whatever is happening on campuses with the far left and these parasitic ideologies, who, who sponsors my events at Portland State University? That event, I'm almost positive, was Turning either, Point USA. Turning Point USA sponsored by the College Republicans. Do you, they know I'm an atheist. They know, what is he gonna hide? What am I gonna hide that I'm an atheist right. from these people? Right. Come on. Like, so no, nobody's lying to anybody. No. Who sponsored the Christine Hoff Summers, Brett and Heather event? Turning Point. Yep. Who sponsored the, you know, the Freethinkers have sponsored some of those events and they're uh, a nonpartisan, Event Turning Point is not it, it, Turning Point is nonprofit, but they are strongly a conservative. And think about the situation we're on now. We find ourselves the bizarre reality tunnel uh, a reorganization. Right. Turning Point is sponsoring my organ, my talks about intersectionality as a religion, and I think the talk was victims, victims everywhere. Something about trigger right. warning, safe space with Christine, but. And what do people, it's in the Magnana clip, what do people post all around campus? Me with a big nose saying that I'm pro-life, Trump supporting, 
uh, and Turning Point sponsored my events. Right. Not engaging with your ideas no, at all. No, no, and that's the smear that they use is that Turning Point sponsored my events. But that is the bizarre shifting of Culture War 2.0. So I have to say to your Christian v viewers or listeners right now, I am not your enemy. In fact, you will have, I think you're wrong about your metaphysical claims, but I'm certainly and not you your- you can have that disagreement. You know, I'm happy yeah. to have that disagreement. I don't think that's the most important, I don't think that's what we should be talking about, but I'm, hap I'm happy to talk about that. But I wanna have a conversation with people, and I sincerely do in the classroom, who actually believe, that's John Stuart Mill's dictum, who actually believe what they claim to believe. I want those Christian voices in. I want those Marxists. I want voices that I want to have an academy in which we have diverse voices of diverse people, and I don't just mean the skin color or the sexual orientation, interacting and engaging with each other. And I want them to do that in a healthy, productive way in which everything is on the table. You want to talk about the trans issue, you want to talk about the resurrection, all this stuff is on the table. You do that, not only do we produce a vibrant academy, but then that fuels and is a, a primary contributor to a healthy democracy. Right, at least that we're able to have those conversations, <laughs> that we're able to disagree and disagree passionately with one another, but yet, you know, at the same time say that yes, we need to continue to have those discussions. Right. And I think that that's the only way, and especially encouraging others to have those discussions, as opposed to shutting off the discussion. Right. As opposed to and, saying, oh, you can't even have that conversation. And the consequence of not being a, I mean, it's just, it's, there is such a realignment that is going on now, but I'm constantly struck by how many Christians I see who have not caught up on the goings on in society, the recent culture war. Francis Schaeffer, I think, in many ways addressed that a number of years ago, is that, um, you know, he was addressing for the fact that we, and we need to look at things as a whole as well as bits and pieces, you know, and that we tend to be siloed in terms of our ways of thinking and being able to look over and see well, what's happening on over here, what's happening within the field of this study and so forth and, and being able to judge whether that's something is either uh, scientifically correct or not, uh, but then to not hunker down for some reason that we might have an eisegetical understanding of something that we believe that the Bible is saying. Um, and then yet miss the exegetical reality of it, which is I think why Christians have, are not the Amish at this point. Right. Although, I mean, there's a lot to be admired in the Amish as well. I mean, they, they run a pretty good society internally, but in essence what they've done in internalizing themselves is they've become anti-evangelistic in that sense, you know, because it all becomes just within the community. But what's happening now is there's a sense of that they're trying to create a community, and by this I mean the I would call them the progressive deconstructionists. Uh, I don't even like saying the far left, because there's even those that I would consider to be in the far left. I agree, left. so that's, yeah, yeah. I agree, that's also a problematic term. I, I would say that the new crop of quote unquote intellectuals, I'm hesitant to give them that, that much credence. That the social justice scholars. The yeah. social justice scholars would Just be the best Just name them who they are, the yeah. social justice, yeah. with the capital S and the capital J. Yeah. That's who they are. I almost want to, because here's the thing, I. I'm concerned about sociology within our nation, and I'm concerned about justice within our nation, not in the way that John Rawls does, but I'm, I am concerned about the fact that they are trying to deconstruct 
everything that all this true progress, and I don't, I don't, I almost want to not refer to them as progressives either, because no, they're not. It's regressive. It is regressive. That's Majit Nawaz's term. It's going back to pre-modernity right. in an instant, right? Without understanding how we've gone from pre-modernity to modernity, yeah. and as well that so even I, the, I have right. my own speculation about that, but go. Yeah, I wrote a really long essay last winter for about Ariel. for Ariel magazine about how this. This is a 15,000 word essay. This is a heavy read. It takes people, it's got a lot in it. So it takes people about two hours to get through. Um, but I try to identify how what's going on with social justice should be understood as a postmodern faith. So technically what we consider religions are yeah. pre-modern faiths that have maybe moved into the modern period modern or faith. not. Yes, sure. Well. And here you have a truly postmodern faith. Rather than having a God they look up to, they have a systemic problem, hate, that they try to run away from. They have an inversion of the virtues and sins of the world. Forgiveness, for example, is usually treated as a virtue. No. no. <laughs> Forgiveness is complicity. Right. Forgive ah, and that's another example of why the distance between our reality tunnels is more narrow than the distance between those reality tunnels. Go ahead, right. sorry. So the only effective difference between these things, uh, faith tradition and, and this postmodern social justice, the only effective difference between the two is whether or not God's alive or God's dead. Yeah. That's it. That's it. They have a God is dead model that perceives magical forces that operate through the way people talk about things in society versus, versus a, a structure that sees a living deity that is, you know, either above the world or pervasive throughout the world or whatever it happens to be, according to theology. That's the only difference. So Christians should really be able to, especially evangelical, because this is a very evangelical faith. They call their, their converts woke, right. it is, which it's, the parallels are staggering. Correct. Uh, it, it has strong elements that should relate back to Calvinism. Privilege operates like total depravity, for example. Um, it's very Augustinian, very Augustinian. It's very, it should be a very, it operates in a confessional model. Your job is to identify your sin and confess for it over and over and over again, the sin being power, access to power, or which is called privilege. The grand difference that I would see is that they're creating God in the image of man as opposed to man being created in the image of God. And sure, the, sure, the, the sure. biological realities that are present that cannot be denied by science uh, by what we would understand as well through faith. Yeah, too, I'll, I'll go. I'll go one one more on that. Leaving Catholicism aside for a second, what, what does one need to believe? And maybe this is a difference between our reality tunnels. So, what does one need to believe that Jesus walked on water, for example? Well, you need to suspend the idea in a, of a single moment, or maybe a few few moments, physics. That's pretty much it. What do you need for the rampant biology denialism held by these people? You need the constant, no matter what, you, you, the, the, it's not even a leap. It, it is a, help me out here. It, 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 you, it's a paradigm shift. It, you, wouldn't, yeah, it, you, 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 you have to have a complete but constant it's, barrage. It's even more of a paradigm shift. So, so it's a paradigm shift to think that someone walked on water, but it's, it's when confronted with a multiplicity of every conceivable type of evidence to d yet still deny that. Right. That is a whole new level of denialism. 
You need a cognitive apparatus capable of doing that. I'm going to throw out a, a, a speculation, a hypothesis I've had for a long time. Uh, this is not a very nice thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think I put out a tweet a while ago that said that th there really is a, a suite of commonalities among these folks. And I think I, I put something like dyspeptic, underaccomplished malcontents. I think almost universally, if, if you look at who these people, I was talking to Michael Shermer from the Skeptic Society the other day, and I don't even know if I want to name this individual who's going after Steven Pinker. But if you look at the, these folks, they are the same people over and over. It's that hyper-vocal fringe minority with these reality tunnels that think Nazis are everywhere and, I mean, truly stuff that's so outside the bounds. F to believe even a fraction of this stuff is so far from my reality tunnel when there's overwhelming evidence, again, can I prove Jesus didn't walk on water? No, I can't even prove Jesus didn't exist, but I can take any one of these beliefs and disprove it in about two minutes by 10,000 independent data points. So, so, but my point is that there is something that is, it seems to be an intrinsic feature of the types of people who hold these ideologies. And they seem to have certain commonalities under-accomplished, enraged. <laughs> Just keep on going. Don't stop. Keep on going. Yeah, keep going. There's a more charitable explanation, but carry on. Okay, give me your charitable explanation. No, 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 you're on a roll. Don't stop. Uh, so, okay, so now I'm self-conscious. But okay, so they really are under-accomplished. They're enraged. They do not understand how much work it takes to be successful at something. And the consequence of that is they discharge their rage on people they see are not as, they can't understand why they're not garnering the success, why their ideas, why their podcasts. Envy. Why, it's envy, it's a kind of, it's a kind of righteous envy. There's, a, there's actually support for that. And then I'll give you the charitable interpretation yeah. that, that actually is probably cognitively what's going on besides these, you know, we'll say baser motivations where they may or may not exist. Um, in the, there's a book I was asked to review, Critical Dietetics, which is not Dianetics. It's not yes. Scientology. It is yes. the study of diet, like dietitians. It's the Critical Dietetics and Critical Nutrition Studies. And in it, they openly tell the history of this, I, I hesitate to call it a discipline, this approach. And uh, they talk about how they originally started to write these papers using critical methods, meaning critical means to complain critical. about in order to, to identify and make visible problems to affect a desired political and social change. Right. They, they, they admit to having written these papers and started to push this and having struggled to find success in the dietitian industry or the nutrition industry and then turning to critical dietetics as a means to point out why they couldn't succeed is that this, the, the whole thing's full of biases that hold them down. Right. The victim mentality. Right. Now, the right. more charitable explanation is how can you engage in such rampant bio biology denialism on such a scale, for example, to where you deny that, say, men and women are in any way meaningfully different. Or obesity. Or, yes, or that obesity is... Is, is harmful. Is harmful. <laughs> the way is, and there's one way, is that you have an unthinkable thought at the heart of it. You have an unforgivable sin. Once you identify some 
one belief that cannot be transgressed, then you start having people rationalize all kinds of crazy stuff to any level of extent. And that belief is? The bigotry is the most heinous possible thing that nobody should ever participate in, even by accident. And that's the key part. Even by accident, even by existing within a system that has has it as a feature that pops up sometimes. So bigotry to the oppressed. Bigotry. So bigotry pointed back to who you have made the oppressor. Sure. Is so, fine. Sure, of course. It has to follow the, the power dynamic. And so I really think, and I, I genuinely think this, that where things have gone awry and not altogether for bad reasons is we have put way too much emphasis on how bad acts of bigotry are they are bad people should absolutely strive not to be bigots people should do whatever it takes not to be bigoted i think in general it's not really helping people at all however to see it as something that is infinitely bad absolutely misjudges it and it prevents you from being able to, as Pete calls it, morally triage, to prioritize different things. So you can take your average left-leaning person and ask them, do you think, if you had a magic wand and you could that, wave it. That's my litmus and, test. And you could solve one of these two problems and only that, there's no other options on the table. You could get rid of climate change, which you see as an existential threat to the whole, the whole species, or you could solve racism. Which one would you solve? You have people in this fringe minority, this is a litmus test to identify them by, who say racism. I have asked that question to my classes. So I originally thought of that question because I was trying to think of a way to highlight some of the things that we were talking about for our book to figure how to have impossible conversations so that you could then figure out subs uh, subsequent questions. And then I, I thought, well, okay, so when I've asked, I don't even know, hundreds of people I've asked this question now. and. Some people, my, my friends from my, my, my gym at Straight Blast, I'll say, would you rather solve, you have a wand, your magic wand, you can solve one problem, climate change, or, and they won't even let me finish. They'll say climate change. Okay, you win, right? And then some people, they'll really think about it, they'll say, I don't know. Some people will say racism, Okay. Other people will say that you, that they're tied together, so you can't solve well, they, climate they would, change without solving racism first. They would first. say that, that climate change is due to the white male patriarchy. Yes, exactly. So, you know, and, 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 and they then, try to skirt around the question. Well, and right, then as well, right, right. The curious thing is that they also try to prevent the debate over the actuality of climate change. Sure. So that right away makes. And this question, you know. the questions. I mean, climate change is an emblem here, of course. Correct. It could be. Any imaginary Plastic hypothetical, the oceans it doesn't or matter, yeah. hypothetical existential threat, genuine existential threat, within the next X years this is going to cause untold trillions of dollars of damage no matter what, somehow well, to countless humanity, lives, countless lives, maybe, loose nukes, maybe, who knows, maybe end the species versus racism. Right. And if you can't figure out, if you think that racism is so infinitely bad that that's your priority over literally an existential threat to the species, or to maybe all the species, then, maybe. then you have, that's how you can do biology denialism at the most rampant of levels, is because you have something that you've made unthinkable for right. yourself, morally unthinkable. That's and right. once you have a morally unthinkable place, you have to bend everything else around that because you can't think it. Right, so in essence what 
uh, F.C. Bauer and, and Rudolf Bultmann did uh, in the last 200 years, um, which, you know, I think that the, the Christian church answered pretty strongly for the most part, not all, but I think for the most part it was answered. But there was the, the attempt to demythologize Christianity. Uh, in essence, what we are now focusing in on is demythologizing intersectionality and progressive deconstructionism. That that's the goal right now. And whether Christians that still believe that they actually believe truly in the things that they uh, hold true, and as well folks that are clear thinking through a scientific method, atheists and others are beginning to unify. There is beginning to, to have this whole alignment being creative saying, well, yes, we want to have our disagreements and continue to fight it out on these things, but hey, at least we're able to ha have the fight. You guys don't even want to do that. You want to deny us the opportunity to actually even have the discussion That's with exactly you. Correct. Because it perpetuates the discourses, yeah. That tells me there's a problem there. So, I so Yeah, that's off so the hey, rail. Look, that's we, right. We all still want to argue about a bunch of things, but you're telling us that now even we can't even argue with each other. And we also that's can't right. even argue and with that's, you. That's why Michael Shermer's debate, I can't remember who it was, Michael Shermer is staunchly in favor of gay marriage, and he was right. going to debate someone who was against gay marriage as a Christian, and it was disallowed. On campus. That, see, that's insanity. And, that's, and I, I think right. when you can't have that discussion, um, that's where you know that you're actually losing liberty because it is hate speech or you're platforming somebody or whatever the case may be. Right. The only reason yeah. I could possibly think of that, which is not the case, is if someone wanted to claim, well, he doesn't actually believe that, he wants to give the worst arguments so the other side could slaughter him, yeah. which is not the case. Right. They were not arguing that. They were arguing this should not be held on college campus. Right. There's exactly. a reason for this, you know. Yeah, go ahead. It is because everything comes down, or not quite everything, but most everything comes down to discourse analysis. If you are legitimizing discourses, so by him sitting down in a debate in a sanctioned arena connected to a university, the opponent that's doing the anti-gay marriage perspective is having his views legitimized by society. Right. And the goal is to absolutely take anything out of the social justice canon and delegitimize it to where it can't even be spoken about. Because if it's spoken about, it gets legitimacy. And if it has legitimacy, it's, it's contributing to the discourses. Right. And it's, again, it's, the mindset's very different. It's very spiritual in a sense that in a, in a really weird sense, but it's that the discourses are creating the oppression. They maintain the oppression. So the discourse itself has to be made pure. It has to be made totally inclusive. The opposite of hate is inclusion. The opposite of, of injustice is justice through equity. And the, uh, these are the missions that they're pushing. And anything that disagrees with that, not only must it be disagreed with, and, and denounced, it has to be not allowed in any legitimate forum, otherwise it's still part of the discourse. Right. And what's in the discourse is everything for them. Yeah, so, I mean, in, on a more practical level, what do you think is gonna happen when someone wants to, okay, let, let's, let's say that the, the zeitgeist is, you know, which I believe gays should be allowed to marry, I have no problem with that, we'll talk about that later, but, Imagine believing that and having no idea why you believe it other than everybody believes it. And not being able to examine that at a beyond a, this is why I believe that. Well, why do you believe that? 
and not being able to come up with a coherent answer. The only answer is because it's hate, which if we were going to bounce this back to the Puritans, because it's the devil. It's the influence of the devil. That's what it is. That's the, that's the depth of the it's argument. It's a religious construct. It is a religious construct. Totally. It is the influence totally. of the devil. That's, that's the whole Debate thing. Debate over. Debate yeah. over. And now, we're not letting satanic discourse be able to exist within the rest of the space that will become society, you must as well continue to follow the intersectional gods. Yeah, and I wonder, I think that's going to have several schisms and the road ahead is going to be torturous, windy. I bet at some point you're going to see the emergence of a choice between a gospel so bastardized as to not only be unrecognizable, but there'll be a choice point in which one will have to choose between the liberation of oppression and salvation through Jesus Christ. Sir, that's already happening. Good prediction. Oh, well, the prediction came true. Absolutely, and that's one of the reasons why we're talking. Mm. Now, you might say to yourself, well, why do we care about that? We don't believe it anyway. We don't buy into the whole system. Why should we care about that? What, I have a response to that. What's your response? Because they're trying to, they're not participating in the broader system that is liberty. They're, they're trying to redefine the entire rules of engagement to where you can only talk about things on their terms and that people who disagree or even who don't agree enthusiastically have to be stamped out and their voice has to be completely silenced and they're, they're given no representation or opportunity. I think that's un-American. I don't agree with your beliefs, but your beliefs are your beliefs. You can believe anything you want to believe, man. That's yours. That's, that's, that's the that's, United States. That's what we have in this country. Right. I don't want this to be Iraq. You want to go to church, you want to pray five times a day, naughty, you want to do what you want to do. Hey, you can do whatever you want to do. Be a zebra. And I, and I, care, about you, and I, I care about your dog. And well, I appreciate you, that. You, you care about my lower GI problems. <laughs> and we, we're we're going to go eat some sushi, but I'm going to have miso soup, soup right, instead. Right. You know, and it's, it's like you navigate your way through life and through society that way. And we continue to have conversations. We continue to have, to have a relationship because we yeah, care about each other. And the key is, to, there are a few keys there. We have to buy into basic, fundamental civilizational values. Yeah. Like, we, it, it, that's just... That's the necessary, maybe even the necessary and sufficient condition. Like that's, I mean, I guess there should, could be other sufficient <laughs> conditions. Like, you know, when you see the guy sexually assaulting someone, you can't laugh and just walk by. Like right. you have to do something like all the police, like say, stop it. Like, you know, like there are some normal, not even rules, but ways of engaging the world that I would expect of somebody with whom I'm interacting. Like, not laughing at somebody's suffering would be chief among those. 